0: Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 106, All Chaos on the Western Front. In our last episode, we brought Lord Loudon to North America and watched the British Northern Frontier's offensive capability be completely destroyed within a month following the disaster at Fort Oswego. But the situation wasn't that much better on the Western Frontier. During the winter of 1755-1756, a number of forts were constructed on the western frontiers of Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia, each with a small garrison. This made for, in theory, a chain of fortifications commanding strategic points to dominate and protect the frontier. This didn't quite work in practice. While some were strong forts, such as Fort Augusta in Pennsylvania and Fort Cumberland in Maryland, many were much less than this. In many cases, they were a stockade surrounding a few cabins. Then, they were each located roughly 20 miles apart, which made them isolated. They were only capable of providing refuge points, for people from the backwoods to flee from, never mind actually repel a raid. Washington thought they were useless, while Montcalm called them pretended forts. The colonies did quite little throughout 1756, with Maryland doing by far the least. It had the smallest frontier and the least interest it raised only 250 provincial soldiers throughout the year, and by autumn concluded that Fort Cumberland wasn't worth defending, with the Assembly instructing that the fort be abandoned, with a force relocating to Fort Frederick, 70 miles to the east. Virginia did a great deal more. The House of Burgesses raised £55,000 for defence, while Colonel Washington was authorised to enlist 1,500 men, although he did not even manage to raise half that figure. In the north, the colonies paid wages to its soldiers, but in Virginia, the proposed compensation was so miserly that few volunteered, and they had to resort to conscription laws that only applied to those who were too poor to flee the colony. Those troops that had been raised were then under provisioned, a point made repeatedly by Washington in his many threats to resign his command. This small force would fight a number of small battles throughout 1756, and Washington slowly began to instill discipline into the unit, but Washington was barely holding on to the frontier, and it would be impossible to do any more without Indian support. However, despite Dinwiddie's efforts, Neither the Cherokees or Catawbas were interested in fighting with Virginia. The colony that improved its defences the most was Pennsylvania, but that says more about how underdefended Pennsylvania was before 1756 than anything else. The colony didn't have an organised militia, and its backcountry experienced a great deal of raiding that saw the frontier collapse. At the time, the most common reason suggested was the behaviour of the pacifist Quakers. While the pacifism and generally positive working relationships with the Indians were likely contributing factors, it isn't widely believed anymore. It had more to do with the politics of the colony and the issue of taxation. There was an argument between the governor who represented the interests of the Penn family, and of the Crown, and the Assembly, representing the interests of the population. The Penn family owned all land in Pennsylvania that was unallocated, and the wealth of the family came mostly from selling it. The Assembly wanted a land tax, but the Governor instead wanted to tax the population, which the Assembly resisted. The Assembly would not raise a shilling in the defence of the colony unless the proprietorial lands were taxed too. The two sides refused to move. It took refugees bringing the corpses of their relatives into Philadelphia to break the impasse. A feat managed by then-political outsider Benjamin Franklin and an ally in the Assembly, Joseph Galloway. Who managed to broker a compromise that allowed both sides to save face while raising finances. The preparations for war forced the Quaker oligarchy to make a decision on where they stood, standing by the measures undertaken for the defence of the colony, things such as bounties for Indian prisoners or their pacifism. They almost universally chose pacifism, And the Quaker community in Pennsylvania retired from public life, which they had dominated since the foundation of the colony. The old political order of the colony had fallen, to be replaced by new men, most notably Benjamin Franklin and his allies Joseph Galloway, John Hughes, and Isaac Norris, who took over the anti-proprietary faction. This was radical, but naturally had little immediate effect, with raiders making it to within 70 miles of Philadelphia in 1756. We've now caught up with events during 1755 and 1756 in the colonies, and are at the same point as Pitt coming to power in Westminster. So before we dive into 1757, which we'll do next week, I'd like to include some analysis from Anderson's The Crucible of War. Quote, the collapse of Britain's war effort in the colonies during 1756 had resulted from a variety of factors, including the confusion that resulted from the change in command from Shirley to Loudon, the general weakness of the position in which Shirley had left the campaigns, the stunning loss of Oswego, and the deftness of the French in using Indian allies against the British settlements. These were all the reasons Loudon and his masters in Whitehall recognised, and each was, in its way, valid as an explanation, yet there were two other factors, neither of which they could have fully grasped, that contributed even more dramatically to the failures of British arms in America. The first of these was Lord Loudon himself, as his repeated wrangles with colonial legislatures over quarreling showed, and before his tenure as commander-in-chief ended, such disputes would have occurred in five colonies, or practically everywhere he had stationed large elements of the army. Both his personality and his understanding of Americans inhibited cooperation between the provinces and the crown. As a professional officer who had been granted extraordinary powers, and as an aristocrat with scant sympathy for the cultural norms of the provinces, Loundan interpreted any resistance to his authority as evidence of colonial inferiority, corruption, and rebelliousness. His virtually automatic response to opposition was to threaten to use force to compel submission. That tactic, while effective in the short term, tended over time to to convince the colonists that Loudon himself posed at least as grave a threat to their liberties as the French and Indians, and one much closer at hand. In this way, the actions of His Majesty's own commander-in-chief, because he enjoyed the support of the most influential men in English government, as well as the obedience of thousands of regular troops, became the most convincing arguments many had yet seen, for the lack of identity between their own and the empire's interests. Resistance to Loundan's edicts, haphazard and sporadic at first, grew more general and more consistently sullen as his tenure lengthened. The second factor contributing to the failure of the war effort was the lack of willingness, either on the part of the crown or the colonies, to expend the vast sums of money necessary to make the war a success. Although Loudon's powers were virtually vice-regal in character, his purse was notably short, for the Ministry had sent him to America on the assumption that the provinces could be made to create a common fund to pay for the war. When the various provincial assemblies refused to comply with his requisitions, without exercising the kind of oversight that their previous experience had led them to believe was their prerogative, Loudon saw more evidence of colonial recalitrance and degeneracy. But particularly in the colonies, from Pennsylvania to North Carolina, which had known no serious external threat for years, Assemblies regarded military expenditures as undesirable at best, and as an absolute threat to their rights if dictated by Lord Loudon. The parsimony of the House of Burgesses in funding its own provincial regiment offers the best case in point. By refusing to offer wages and bounties to compete with what civilian labourers and artisans could earn, And relying instead on the conscription of socially marginal men, Virginia's government virtually ensured that its provincial forces would be both chronically undermanned and next to impossible to discipline. In the end, Virginia got exactly as much defence for its frontiers as the Burgesses were willing to pay for, and despite Washington's best efforts, by the close of 1756, The bloody results were only too clear. Friction between the colonists and their commander-in-chief over issues of finance and local control incapacitated British arms in North America during 1756. Although the next year would see substantial gains in organisational stability and a new efficiency in supply and transport services among the British and colonial forces, these underlying problems would go unresolved for a very long time. Before the remedy could be found would fall the darkest hours of the war for Great Britain and its colonies. End quote. That provides a nice stopping point, so I'll see you next time when we get into 1757. Thanks for listening. <laughs>